Now we can go on to chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. So chapter 1, if chapter 1 of Romans is about uh, drug, sex, and rock and roll, um, like the the pagans, chapter 1, remember, he he goes, uh, the wrath of God is being poured out against such as these, right? Uh, He talks about sexual immorality. He he goes, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart. and then uh, he goes, there's all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife. So these are, these are like the, um, the real pagan people, chapter 1. Uh, but then chapter, if that's true, then chapter 2 is really about uh, the self-righteous um, older brother type. Like, remember we talked about the prodigal son, uh, the, the parable where... Uh, Jesus tells the story about the two sons. The, the younger son was the, the licentious, like he went out and, and did his own thing. He uh, wasted his father's money on prostitutes and, and cheap wine and, and um, like fell under the really obvious categories of sin. Um, and then there was the older brother who uh, sinned in, in less obvious ways, but, but still sinned. Um, neither son really loved the father. Uh, they both were just using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving and serving and enjoying him uh, for his own sake. And so this means that you can rebel against God uh, and be alienated from e- either by breaking his rules or by keeping them perfectly. Um, careful obedience to God's law might serve as a strategy for rebelling against God's law. That's what we learn in, in the story of the prodigal son. Um, you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules like the younger son or by keeping his rules like the older son. Um, and so chapter 1 of Romans, younger son, right? Hookers and wild living. And then chapter 2 is, is much more older son. Like he, he said, talks a lot about judgment and, and about... Uh, you have the law. Let's let's learn to walk in that. So let's let's start by reading uh, verse one through five. Uh, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so he's trying to say here, like, Bible-believing, Bible-obeying people listen um, they're looking at all these awful pagans out there in, in chapter 1, rolling in the streets and their, their drunkenness and their orgies, and, and we, you feel superior to them, and yet you are doing the same thing. Um, there was a, a best-selling book in the 70s that was called You're Okay and I'm Okay. Uh, it's like the beginning of this self-help phenomenon. It was by a guy named uh, Thomas Harris. Um, and like... The whole book could have been summarized in four words. I'm okay, you're okay. Nothing wrong, nothing to see here. Don't worry about it, don't stress. Um, 
unfortunately, that's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches, um, which is more like you're dysfunctional and I'm dysfunctional and everything is on fire. Um, <laughs> that seems to be a little bit closer to, to what Scripture teaches. Um, uh, there was a, a minister named John Gerstner who uh, told a story about being in Cambodia uh, and uh, riding in like a little um, river taxi. It's just a kind of a canoe that they would uh, ferry people around. Uh, and um, they, they were coming back toward the, the dock and they accidentally uh, hit another boat um, and it caused a, a hole in, in, in the side of their boat. And so as... Uh, as they paddled back toward the dock, there's a small hole, and the the, uh, the owner of the boat, who didn't speak much English, just starts kind of freaking out. And so this pastor, uh, John Gerstner, goes, "Calm down. You, it's okay. We're okay. You don't understand. You know." He's looking at the hole and looking at the guy, going, "Disproportionate response. It's okay, man. Really calm, calm. It's okay." And this guy is just like muttering to himself in in uh, Cambodian or whatever, like uh, in in his native language. Uh, and as they're pulling up to the the dock, uh, this guy goes, "You not okay? I not okay?" As the boat sinks, like just instantly, um, this this captain was able to see what this American non captain could not see, which was that that hole was growing, uh, and there was an undertow exactly where they were pulling in, and so this this right. As he goes, you not okay, I'm not okay, this boat rips apart and sinks, and they were left just holding onto the dock. Um, this, I think, is, is, uh, is a picture for us reading Romans, where we're going, it's okay, we're okay, not that big of a deal, and God's going, you not okay. Uh, there's a, a problem here. Uh, and, and religious people specifically, Romans 2 was written to people who believe and people who have holy scriptures that they, they trust in. And so we need to read this really carefully and probably get a little freaked out by it. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a passage in Isaiah 64 that says, all of your righteousness is like filthy rags. That, that the very best that we've got is still a hole in the boat. Like our... Uh, our varsity team is just not good enough when it comes to God's righteousness. Our, our best is filthy rags. Uh, I think this might be why, why uh, American people are, are uh, devolving to what experts call uh, MTD, um, moralistic therapeutic deism. So uh, this is just uh, kind of off the, the topic, but the... Uh, in in observing and, and in uh, kind of recording the the beliefs of American people, um, theologians have kind of created a new religion that they call moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, what that means is is that they these are people that call themselves Christians, uh, but they're primarily uh, concerned with morals, uh, so sticking to a moral code. Uh, therapeutic means that this is about making myself feel better, like going to therapy. Uh, and deism, uh, like uh, deistic means God is distant, like he created everything, but he's not really intimate or, or connected to our life. So 
uh, a person who calls himself a Christian but believes in moralistic therapeutic deism is actually not a Christian at all. That's somebody who, who may read the Bible but comes to a different point than what Jesus is making. So, moralistic therapeutic deism. I need you guys to understand this because most Christians miss the mark when it comes to this. Uh, moralistic means mostly concerned with morals. And really, when you read the Bible, Jesus is not primarily concerned with morals. He's concerned with sin as a disease. He says it's going to kill you, but he, he's not trying to make you act better. That's not his ultimate goal. Um, therapeutic, uh, meaning that it's primarily about us and about our feelings, and, and the Bible actually says the exact opposite. Uh, the Bible says, uh, take up your cross and follow me. And, and the Son of Man didn't even have a pillow. You think life is going to be comfortable for you? You good? You need a drink of water? Um, and then deism, uh, the idea that God created everything, but now he's distant, he's not connected, he's not intimate with our, our lives, uh, and the very opposite of, is true in Scripture. Um, uh, so, verse 5 here talks about, uh, it says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Um, so when we were kids, my, my mom had us taken to a, a psychologist to be evaluated. Um, not sure what they were looking for. This is a true story. Um, wanted, to, uh, wanted to understand us better. What's up, man? Um, so she took us to... Uh, a shrink, like a, a Christian counselor. His name was Don. Great dude, um, and uh, and had all of, of her kids evaluated. And she get, came home with these these huge like folders and and um, put them all in into the the filing cabinet. And and we were able to hold on to them for a long time. I would go back to them in high school and just most of it was just like psychobabble, didn't make any sense. But but some of it was really meaningful. Um, and one of the things that that I remember. Uh, uh, that proved to be true over time was he talked about my older brother Jacob, who, uh, who was, I, I always called him the the perfect brother. Like he just never did anything wrong. It was hard to to live up to. Um, but uh, there were times when when Jacob would have these like irrational freak out moments. Like everything's good, just cruising, and then everything is on fire. He, he's trying to kill somebody. Uh, he's punching holes in walls, and, and so the, this psychologist is going, think of uh, a bucket on his shoulder, and every time you do something wrong, rather than uh, respond to, every time you wrong him, rather than respond to it, he just puts that in his bucket. It's no big deal, until the bucket gets full and tips over, and then everything is going to get broken. Like, this is just going to be bad. This is the, the anger bucket. Um, and again, this, this, is, uh, this proved to be true over time. Jacob never forgot anything. And so there were times when, when he would get mad and, and the anger bucket would tip over and he'd all of a sudden be yelling at, at me about something that I had done like six months prior. Um, I didn't even remember it, but he remembered it enough that he was mad about it. Um, this is, I think, what, what Scripture is talking about here in verse 5 where it says, because of your hard heart... Um, you are storing up wrath for yourself because 
God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So God has an anger bucket too, right? Uh, he, he doesn't respond to my sin immediately. When I do something wrong, he doesn't freak out and kill me on the spot. Um, but he's, he's storing it. And uh, at some day, um, Scripture says that, that the cup of God's wrath will, be, will overflow. Uh, God's anger bucket is going to get tipped over. Um, and, and so this reality will kind of hang over the rest of Romans as we talk about, uh, as he, he goes through, uh, like, Christ's act on the cross and on uh, the grace that's offered to us in Jesus Christ. This is, this is kind of going to be the urgent overtone that's just going to color everything that there's a day coming when the anger bucket gets tipped over and, and God's righteous wrath is going to be poured out. And really, this should be an urgent conversation. Like, we should, we should allow that to, to, to give us an urgency. Romans 6 says, uh, the wages of sin is death. Uh, but we, we rarely treat our sin as though it's poison that we're drinking, Right? We, we treat it as though it's like inevitable. I, I, I can't stop myself. It's human nature, whatever. Uh, I, uh, this is just part of me. And yet, Scripture says, this is, this is death that you're willingly walking into. This is God's view of sin. It's that it's deadly. Um, in Genesis, uh, God puts Adam and, and Eve in the garden. And he says, you can eat from any tree that you want, but just don't touch that one in the middle. Uh, don't don't eat the fruit from it, and, and he follows that up by saying, "If you do, you will surely die." And so, if you know the story, they they go, they get tempted by the serpent, they eat the fruit. Um, but something kind of interesting happens is that they don't die, right? That God instead uh, punishes them uh, with short-term uh, punishments, uh, but their their death doesn't happen immediately. It happens later, much later. Uh, we know that God doesn't lie. We know he didn't change his mind. Um, it's just that, that death is not immediate when we sin. But that doesn't mean that the wages of sin are not death. It, the scripture is clear about that. Um, unfortunately, we take that and then twist it, uh, distort it. And so when we sin and we don't drop dead, uh, we start to justify and we go, well, well, maybe some sin just isn't that bad. Like those guys, uh, idolaters and, and drunks and sexual deviants, like uh, those are the bad guys. But my, my sin is small. This is what happens when we don't have immediate consequences for our sin. We just start to go, well, it's, I could do it again. It won't hurt anything if I do it twice. Um, but God never changed his opinion on sin. He said it's deadly. James 2 actually says that if, if anyone is guilty, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one part is guilty of breaking all of it. Um, I think for, for us it's important to remember that, that like the sins of an older brother uh, are harder to see. It's harder to see the consequences of them, but the, those sins are no less deadly. Like the sins of, of being judgmental and um, short-tempered and prideful um, just as much as, as the pagans, uh, the, the bad people need, who steal and abuse and fornicate, they need to handle uh, that sin uh, like it's a lion ready to eat their face. We need to treat judgment and uh, pride in the same way with the same kind of urgency. 
Like we we have this idea that there's there's bad sins and then there's you know kind of everybody does these. It's not a big deal, but to God it, it is a big deal. And what this passage says is that when God chooses not to punish you immediately, His forbearance is meant to lead you to repent, not to continue sinning. He's not patient so that you have more time to squeeze in more sin. He's patient so that you have time to turn away from it and repent. Um, in Second Peter chapter 3, he repeats the same idea. He says, God is patient with us because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And it's again this idea that God is holding that cup of anger. He's not allowing it to, to tip over. Uh, so that he can give us as much time as possible not to continue sinning, but to repent. Um, and so, the reason I believe that Paul starts by, he starts with the really obvious sins. He goes, uh, among you there's malice, envy, murder, strife, maliciousness, gossip, slander. Um, and then he, he, bring, he goes, why are you trying to judge those people? Because you when you judge, are, are just as guilty. Um, he puts everybody into this category of going, you're, you're under the, the curse of sin. Um, and so we've, we've established over the last couple of weeks that the, the solution to that is to be transformed, to be completely changed. Um, so I, I want to ask a, a question for you guys tonight. Um, is moral obedience the same thing as transformation? If it is, then most of us have been transformed already, right? Because for the most part, we obey moral commands. Um, not a lot of, like, car thieves in here, maybe. Um, not a whole lot of... Uh, breaking of the Ten Commandments, like we follow moral rules, more or less. Um, if our definition of transformation is that we do things that are morally right, then we can say that we've been transformed. But I don't think that's a decent translation of, of being transformed, right? Because Jesus repeatedly condemned the most moral people in his world repeatedly like the bad guys in the stories about Jesus were the moral people the ones who tithed on like their paprika they would go into their closet and take out a tenth of it and like this is for God <laughs> it's for his deviled eggs uh, the Pharisees were, were the religious uh, spiritual leaders of the day who were also uh, political leaders and and they took pride in, in just going like we're good at this we don't mess up on on little sins and and we're i'm so far away from the sin i've built a, a wall around the sin i won't even get close to the wall um and jesus was just consistently going like you're he called them whitewashed tombs was probably the worst insult he ever um just a mic drop moment he goes you're uh you are uh, a brood of vipers your your snakes whitewashed tombs um, what that means is that they're they're a tomb they're filled with like dead rotten flesh there there's nothing good happening inside but you can paint the outside white and make it look pretty um, 
they had successfully cleaned up the outside but not the inside. Um, and I think realistically when we read Romans we have to slow down and let the Holy Spirit convict us of this too. That we might be more concerned with cleaning up the outside than being transformed on the inside. And that puts us in a really, really dangerous position. God doesn't want somebody that pretends to be perfect and yet is corrupted uh, from the inside out. And so what if the target that we're shooting for, the, the thing that we're fighting for, isn't to just uh, moralistically capitulate and just go along with what we're told? And what if, we're, we're, what if the problem is that we're trying to apply an external solution to an internal problem? Like we're trying to paint everything pretty, but the, the problem is inside and it, it isn't solved that way. If we skip ahead to verse 17 uh, through verse 24, it says, If you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what's excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You, like, you can hear the kind of sassy, he's just being snarky here. Like, you think you're so smart. Um, an instructor of the foolish, teacher of children, you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You who teach others, why not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. And so it's written, the name of God is blasphemed, made fun of among the Gentiles because of you. These, these people that Paul is writing to knew the law. It's probably safe to say that they were pretty zealous about keeping it like they were sincere about just wanting to do the right thing they had this moral obedience and yet Paul says to them you teach others why like teach yourself you say all the right words but you're guilty of all the same sins they look different maybe uh, but they're happening on the inside all the white paint in the world can't possibly cover up the fact that your insides just haven't been changed like Thursday, I met with a guy who's, who's currently in rehab for the sixth time. Uh, he's an alcoholic. And so for the last 15 years, he's, he's checked himself into rehab. And, and Thursday, he's gone, this time, it's going to work. I'm like, I, like, I don't know. Really? Are you sure? Why? What's different? And he goes, every other time that I've been in here, I'm just looking for a trick, like some kind of tip to learn how to put the bottle down. But this time... I figured out the bottle's not the problem. The bottle is, is like a symptom of the real problem, which is that I got something going on on the inside. And so I got to sit with this guy and pray with him and Bible study with him and at the end go, I think you're right. Like this, this time is going to be different. If you, can, if you can really figure out what, what's on the inside, if you can attack that problem, then the symptoms will be changed also. He's just now realizing... Uh, that it's a symptom of a deeper disease. And I think a lot of us think of God's law the same way that he thought about rehab. It's just a way to modify our behavior. Like, it's just a way to put the bottle down. We're just looking for a, a trick to, like, get, get our life right. Rather than 
revealing our inner self, which is the problem. Um, what I told him, and, and this I, I think might be helpful to us, uh, in the middle of his fight against addiction, um, I think that there's a gap between knowing what I need to do and then actually doing it, right? Because he, he, we talked for, for about an hour. I think he knows the right answer. But the, the, the distance between that and actually getting checked out in six months and, and having the tools to, to fight when that uh, addiction comes calling, like there's a gap there. It's, uh, we can't pretend that there's not. Like he knows in his head that giving in to his addiction uh, will cost him his relationships, his job, um, and, and he knows that he has to be diligent in avoiding that temptation. But there's a lag between knowing that and actually doing it. It takes time to get over that gap. Um, Benjamin Bloom is a, a famous uh, educational psychologist. Um, whether you know it or not, you're probably familiar with his work. Um, he says there are actually five steps of learning. Um, and so we usually think there's, there's two steps. Either I know something, like I, first, first step, I don't know something, I hear it, and second step, I know it, like here or there. Uh, but uh, what we don't always understand is that it usually takes a long time uh, and many baby steps, incremental steps, to actually understand a new value. Uh, these are the five steps. The first one is awareness, where you go, oh, that's an interesting idea. I've never heard of that before. Um, the second step is pondering. Um, I want to help me understand more about that. What does that really look like? And the third step is valuing, where you go, you know what? I really believe that that is important. Um, and my friend in rehab is kind of at that stage right now where he's, he's gone, uh, that, uh, sobriety being more about what's on the inside than, than what I'm holding in my hand, uh, that's an interesting idea. Tell me more about that. Um, and he's finally gotten to the point where he goes, you know what, I think that that's true. I believe that. But there's the next step is prioritizing, where you, you say, I'm shifting things in my life to accommodate that. And there's a big gap between going, yeah, I think that that's true, to, yeah, I'm going to actually stop going to these places because I know that's trouble. I'm going to, to stop thinking along these lines because I know that that's going to lead me into trouble. The, the fifth step is owning, where, where you go, all of my decisions, um, all of my actions take this into account. And the gap between knowing something and getting to that stage of like, I really own this. This is true for me all the time. There's a huge gap there. And I think... It, what this looks like in faith is that we can know, like, my sin is just as bad as anybody else's sin. I believe that. I know it. But to, to actually get to the stage of, of treating my own sin as though it's as bad as um, killing somebody. Like, every time I hate somebody, Jesus said it, it's, it's as bad as murder. Those are his own words. But there's a difference between knowing that, I know that, and then actually acting like that's true. Actually taking that in and making it true. For my, my friend, there's a difference between knowing uh, addiction is, is going to cause problems and then moving into the place of going, I'm going to fight against my temptations. And for us, we know the right answers, but do we really live it? When it comes to our sin, are we serious about putting it to death?
I think between stage three and four, there's got to be a movement of the Holy Spirit. The stage three is like, I know it, I believe that it's true. And stage four is like, I'm going to rearrange my life so that I can live this. And there's, that's where the Holy Spirit intercepts. He comes in and he, he makes it possible to take what you know to be true to actually do it. And I think this is where a lot of times the church falls short when we try to help people. Is we go, like, white knuckle this. Just enough effort, enough, uh, like, spit and elbow grease, you can do it. And I just don't think that's true. I don't think I can change my identity without a movement of God. And this is really what we're talking about, moving away from sin. That's, that's who I used to be. That was, that was everything that my identity was wrapped up in. And so in order to, to forget who I used to be and become somebody new, I just can't do that by elbow grease. There has to be a, a miracle involved in that, a, a Holy Spirit movement. When you try to do it on your own with spit and elbow grease, you'll be left frustrated and unfulfilled. But when we go, listen, I know the right answer, and I'm going to need the Holy Spirit to move me so that I can do it right, that's when we get into real transformation. My point in bringing this up, that, that life is a series of baby steps, is just to encourage you to give yourself a little bit of grace. Like, speaking for myself here, I, um, I, I usually think of things in like, either I know it or I don't know it. So if I don't know it, no big deal. But if I know it, now it's like, I got to get this done right away. I have to start living this out. And I think the truth is we need to give ourselves some grace to, to take baby steps and go, that's, that's the point on my horizon that I'm moving towards, but I'm, I'm just not there yet. Just knowing the right information doesn't always lead to immediate transformation. And you have to give yourself permission to take a bunch of baby steps to get there. Um, the trick, I think, is to be intentional in those baby steps and to not take weeks off and to not uh, get off course and start taking little steps towards something else, but to fix that point on the horizon and, and make a, a daily habit of moving toward it in some way. When we talk about faith, the, the way to, to grow and be transformed in our faith and our perception of the world and in in how big like sin looks to us and how big grace looks to us, the, the solution to that is to take a step toward Christ every day. And so we do that in scripture, we do that in prayer, we do that in community with one another, uh, we do that uh, sometimes in, in this kind of gathering, we do that by serving uh, those that are uh, in need, um, we do that by loving people that, that are, are strangers to that. trick is to be intentional. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus took our external problems and he made them internal, right? Uh, he goes, you have heard it said, uh, don't commit murder, but I tell you, if you hate your brother, you're guilty. When God gave that, the sixth commandment, uh, he didn't just want people to refrain from murdering one another. He wanted them to refrain from the hatred that leads to murder. Murder is only the outward, the external manifestation of an inward sin. And Jesus goes, uh, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. 
But I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust, you're just as bad. The, the rabbis in Jesus' day used to uh, look at adultery as wrong because it involved stealing someone else's wife. They viewed it as an external act, but Jesus goes, no, this is uh, internal. Uh, it, it takes that uh, impure motive from within to make it happen. He's not looking here for, for moral behavior. He's not looking for people to straighten up and fly right. And if you do this, this, and this, and don't do these things, all will be well. He's intentionally here setting the bar impossibly high so that we go, who could do that? Like, who could live up to that? Who could keep their thoughts pure 24-7? Who could never hate somebody or never lust after somebody? The answer is nobody. The answer is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All sin leads to death. And so it should put us into a desperate place where we go, I don't have a solution for this problem. We don't have a solution for this problem. I think it's really telling. Um, I think it's instructive for us that Jesus started his ministry with that. Um, he starts by setting this impossibly high bar. He goes, not only don't murder people, don't even think bad about them. Not only don't sleep with your neighbor's wife, don't, don't, uh, don't let any impure thought cross your mind. And then he proceeds to spend three years having dinner with his friends, sharing his life with them, teaching, rebuking, correcting, encouraging, training them. Um, I think that that's instructive for us. That transformation um, for his disciples didn't happen overnight, the second that they heard that, but it happened as they spent time with Jesus, as they spent time in community with each other transformation um, takes time. Um, we'll call it a night on, uh, on Romans 2. I uh, hope that we get uh, some more opportunity to discuss this Wednesday night at a combined house church. What? Uh, let me pray and then they come out we'll sing. Uh, Jesus, thanks for uh, your word, and uh, just pray that you would be uh, present in hearing of your word, that as we, as we read what you wrote to us in Romans, that it would just be, um, it would be changing something in our hearts and minds. Um, teach us how to, to walk the way that you want us to. That's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.